America's economy in the 2010s was a mixed bag. On one hand, we had the longest expansion in U.S. history, and unemployment is currently at a four-decade low. On the other hand, productivity growth remains disappointing, leaving us mired in the 2% economy. So why has economic growth continued to disappoint over the past few decades? And what can we expect of these trends as we enter the new decade? To answer these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Klenau. Peter is the Ralph Landau Professor in Economic Policy at Stanford University, as well as the Gordon Moore Senior Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. His work focuses on the macroeconomics of growth, productivity, and prices. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to join you. Uh, as we record this, we're entering a new decade. Uh, looking back, how do you think economists will remember the 2010s as an impressive decade? We have, we're in the middle of the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. Or will they look at it as a, a disappointing decade where the economy kind of puttered along at about 2% growth? Uh, you know, slower than the you know post World War II average. How how they look? You know, how will you look at least look at back on the uh, 2010s economically? Well, cyclically it looks great, like you said, in terms of unemployment rate falling more or less continuously and employment rising. But in terms of incomes per worker, much more disappointing. So I think you know we had that slow growth period after the oil embargo in the early 1970s that lasted some 20 years. And then we had this brief period of about 10 years of rapid growth. And maybe we told ourselves when the economy grew slowly from like 2005 to 2010, that that was partly the after effects of the you know, Great Recession and the global financial crisis. So I think we would be disappointed. We'll be disappointed when we look back and say that the growth rate didn't pick up again. Uh, productivity growth averaging something like 1%. So in terms of like output per worker hour, um, really disappointing, I think, from a longer run perspective. Given demographics, you know, it's sort of hard to, you know, it's sort of hard to grow fast like we did in the, you know, like the 1960s. People point to 1960s of an era of very fast growth. Of course, you had a lot faster, uh, you know, workforce population growth back then than you do now. So it's so it's. And the demographics is kind of baked into the cake. So it's really the productivity growth that we haven't seen pick up uh, after that sort of spurt from the um, mid-90s to, you know, about 2004, 2005. Right. The direct effect of the slowdown in workforce growth, like you said, that slows GDP growth. But that doesn't bother me so much in the sense that if we have fewer people, there should be fewer jobs. And that's just a natural slowdown. Just like, you know, Japan grows more slowly in part because of um, in their case, maybe negative workforce growth. Um, so, th so those effects are relatively benign. But as you said, the productivity, weak productivity growth is much more concerning. Now, it could be those two are linked. Um, you know, we'd certainly see a strong relationship between, say, startups of firms and population growth. So just having more people means more people to operate businesses and run them and start them and uh, work for them. So to the extent that innovation is associated with startups of businesses, then slower population growth might be slowing the supply of labor to start new enterprises and innovate. And of course, it slows the growth rate of the size of the market, which could also affect the profitability of innovation. So there could be some really interesting feedback effects you know, from slow population growth to slow productivity growth that operate through you know, innovation, but you know, not just the starting up businesses, but even like incumbent firms. If there's less population growth, that's less growth in the number of people to do research, 
um, which which is why you know I, I think in some of your earlier podcasts and earlier blog posts you talked about things like immigration of high skilled uh, workers and how that might help the U.S. Uh, address its, pro- its weak productivity growth. Well, I mean that's uh, that's a concern. Uh, if we can't address that side of it, I, I mean, listen, I think a lot of people have been hoping. Boy, if you read the business pages, it, it, it seemed that for the past decade, there was one sort of amazing company, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley. How many times have we heard the stories about the potential impact of smartphones? Everybody has a, you know, a, a, a supercomputer in their pocket. And at some point we would see that stuff somehow result in at least faster, you know, more, you know, more innovation and that would transfer the productivity growth and that would transfer into faster economic growth and maybe offset some of those demographic issues. But is that not happening or we're just unable to measure that it's happening? I think there's more than just a measurement problem. I think measurement is part of it. Um, I think we, you know, the government is well aware of this. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example, which is responsible for measuring inflation that they subtract out of, say, nominal GDP growth to arrive at a measure of real growth that feeds into productivity. So they've known for a long time that it's really hard to measure the benefits of brand new products um, or even improved versions of existing products. And their sense is that they're, they're, they might be missing half a percent per year, 1% per year, but that it hasn't necessarily accelerated how much they're missing. So the idea that, you know, so they sort of always, at least, you know, for you know decades, kind of missed it by the same amount. So it's not getting worse. Yeah, I don't see any evidence that it's getting worse. It may have gotten worse in the IT sector and in the health sector, but gotten less worse in some other sectors. Um, so there are overall estimate is, you know, it's hard to estimate how much something you have a hard time measuring, of course. It's like trying to measure the black market. But measuring, um, you know, the magnitude of the understatement, we don't find a lot of firm evidence that it's gotten bigger, that the problem's gotten bigger, like you said. So the economic impact of the internet and sort of the, the information revolution. So is it, was it just a 10 year thing and that's it, you know, from the mid nineties to the mid two thousands. And we had some, you know, we had this higher growth. You had the internet, you know, stock bubble, but you know, real things actually were created and there was real productivity growth. And I certainly talked to a lot of pessimists. They're like, well, it was an, it was an important technology. It just didn't match up to some of the great, general purpose technologies of the past, like electrification or the combustion engine. And it, does it turn out the internet, the internet just isn't another combustion engine and it's not electrification? It's important, but just not as important as those technologies. Um, that could well be. Um, I'm still hoping that in the future, if you broadly include things like um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, that maybe we'll get much bigger productivity gains in the future than what we've experienced so far. But I guess another thing to keep in mind, though, is I, even though I'm sympathetic with your statement that maybe we got a 10-year burst of productivity growth from it, which was still pretty good, because if, if productivity grew, you know, two and a half percent or more when it was on a one percent trend over 10 years, that's accumulating, you know, ignoring compounding to like 15 percent productivity boost and level. That's pretty good. I'll take yeah. that. I grant your point that that would be much smaller than estimates of the productivity benefits of things like electrification, um, but I would also say that kind of assumes we would have hummed along at the 1%. So maybe we would have fallen below 1% and computers helped lift us, you know, not, not from one to two and a half percent, but maybe from a half a percent to two and a half percent. So, because we can't quite see the counterfactual world if computers hadn't been improving at the rate they were, 
um, during you know the last generation. So it could be they're contributing more than 15% cumulative over that time period. And then there's still the unmeasured growth. The, the you know people are saving a lot of time because of um, a lot of things they can do with their smartphone. Um, so that is worth something, even if it's not showing up in, in measured output for our work. Do you expect us to get better at measuring it, at me- measuring me- measuring some of this output that's difficult to, to measure, or is that just always going to be a very difficult thing to do? I am kind of optimistic about that because I feel like we're in a golden age for economics. Maybe people outside economics don't see it that way. But I, 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 I've it heard is- it. I, <laughs> well, I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter, but according to Twitter, at least, this has been a terrible uh, time for economics. You have the profession needs to be blown up, rethink everything. Uh, it's it's the it, it's failed, and uh, now it's time for a new economics. Okay, so let me at least say why I think it's a, a golden age. I guess I mean in terms of the amount of data that we're getting, and mm-hmm. some of it is administrative data like tax records of, 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 of all companies and all individuals, um, population censuses, censuses of other firms in terms of activities. So we're getting much higher quality data uh, than we had before to be able to understand how people behave and what phenomenon is happening. So that could be used to better measure the benefits of new technologies. And, and also at the same time, I think it's a golden age because computing power has enabled us to, to, to do modeling better. Mm-hmm. Um, and understand complex aspects of the economy. So one of the criticisms of economics that I think is rather out of date is the idea that we aren't aware that there's lots of heterogeneity out there in terms of workers, in terms of firms, in terms of consumers. Saying that free trade is good misses all kinds of suffering that happens right. as a byproduct. Some workers benefit, others aren't, you know, aren't going to benefit. Right. So the, because of better data, we're much better at um, measuring that and much better at coming up with ways to uh, think about how to address it and to predict what will happen if we say expand trade adjustment assistance or, or start to target that better or promote it better. We're much better at that than we used to be, I think. Um, and there's a third strand of that, which is related to the most recent Nobel Prize, which is running experiments. And some of those are natural experiments and some of those are deliberate po- policy experiments or just experiments by researchers or NGOs or some combination. But those are enabling us to get at uh, causal effects of policies are much better than we would before. You know, people talk about a credibility revolution in economics where we, we've got more random variation that we can use to understand, um, like I said, the welfare effects of policy changes. So that, those are the forces that make me think we're in the middle of a golden age in, in terms of economic research and our understanding of, of um, economic behavior. Getting back to the uh, productivity issue, are, are, are big technology firms, uh, whether it's Apple, Amazon, or Google Alphabet, are they helping productivity or are they hurting productivity? Uh, you can certainly, you know, people make the case for both. They, they're, they're certainly very productive firms and they spend a lot on, 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 on research. But other people say, well, they're so big that they're, they're preventing com, you know, new competitors from starting. Nobody, want, nobody wants to go against them. They buy up these small companies before they can get big. So they're actually part of the, the problem. So they, are they part of the solution or part of the problem of, if, at least if you want faster economic growth? I think at least in a direct effect, I'm very confident they're part of the solution in the sense that the innovations that they've carried out have benefited you know, people enormously, not just their stockholders, but consumers. Um, I think the harder question is what you also touched on, which is whether their ascendancy and their, and their success in, in terms of their innovations, whether that's 
made it more difficult for follower innovations to occur, whether that's you know, they have so much market power that it's, or maybe even, you know, like in terms of Facebook having a, um, a network externality, a large network that's in place, or even Amazon's marketplace could be viewed as a network that's hard for some other online retailer to really crack. Um, so, you know, or Uber for that matter, you could talk about network effects or incumbent advantages that could deter future innovation. So I, I am concerned about that, but it, that's much more speculative. Um, so even though, you know, I have some research pointing out that that is a possibility and other people do as well, I think that's more, more conjecture at this point. You know, we're, we're, we're more kind of flailing trying to understand why productivity growth is so weak. And one natural candidate is, you know, concentration and market power at the top has increased. And maybe that's deterring future innovation. Um, I mean, so, right. I mean, to me, that sounds like an that sounds like an area um, you know you're interested in, and there seems to be research, and there'll be more research. Uh, but it seems that at least among activists and some policymakers, they've sort of have seen enough that they've sort of already decided that these companies are bad for innovation. That they're that they're they're suppressing new companies from rising. Uh, that they're, they've, they create this sort of, I guess the, the phrase is a, a kill zone. So, you know, the, the next great company doesn't, they, you don't even want to start a company if it's in an, if it's in a sector that those big companies are involved in. So what, what advice would you give policymakers about this, sort of this big company and specifically sort of the big tech company issue? I mean, I think that's a great question. I wish I could tell you here's exactly what to do. Um, but, and I, and I guess, and I don't know basically, but I think what's hard is that I'm tempted to say, well, we need to understand it more before we take an action like breaking up one of these big firms. But that kind of gives a default to you know no intervention and no um, regulation. That makes me uncomfortable as well. What, you know, why, why is that the default? We know the growth rate is down. This is one candidate, so maybe we should take actions. I mean, I guess one of the biggest difficulties with something like breaking up a big firm is that I really want to have evidence-based policy. I really want to say, use, use systematic evidence to decide what will um, improve economic outcomes. And in these cases, it's hard to have systematic evidence because you're talking about a few big players. It's not like you have a lot of different experiments that you're using to understand. Like an, an example of something I, I think um, we understand better is that they, they raise the threshold for an antitrust um, you know, examination of mergers from um, 10 to 50 million, and there was a surge in mergers that was between values of 10 and 50 million. And there were vertical mer or, uh, horizontal mergers of competitors. They weren't vertical mergers of mm -hmm. you know, buyers and suppliers. Um, so it looks like anti-competitive behavior. So I'd be much more comfortable looking at those cases because there's so many of them. We can kind of study what did that change in that threshold do to competition in markets that were affected versus those that were unaffected. It's just much harder to do this kind of systematic analysis when you have like a huge player like Amazon or or Apple or Google. It, it, um, it, if you're worried about if you're worried about competition in the economy, I mean, a lot of the talk has been about you know the very largest tech firms. But but if you were if you were a regulator or that worked at the Justice Department, the FTC, is that the first area you would look at? Are there other areas that? you know, aren't as sexy because everybody's, you know, everybody's involved with Amazon and, you know, we love reading stories about Apple. Uh, is that, or are there other areas that you would maybe focus at on first? Actually, yes, because if we look at the rise in concentration, it's most pronounced in sectors like services. So think of like um, Sutter Health buying up a lot of different 
uh, local health providers. Mm -hmm. So you see it in the healthcare sector and health, you know, rising concentration. You also see it in retail. Um, so services broadly, retail, wholesale, those are the sectors where you see the biggest increase in national concentration. At the same time that I say that though, one of the other things that people are finding is that local concentration isn't necessarily right. This might be kind of like a corollary to what people found when airlines were deregulated. There was this big shakeout of national airlines, a lot fewer national airlines. So national concentration in airline market share went way up, but they were competing more head to head on individual routes. So you actually had more competition um, route by route. So something similar might be going on in some of these sectors, which is national concentration to up, um, but at the same time, local concentration is down. But, you know, Walmart's facing off against some other bigger retailers more frequently than it did in the past. So it's in more markets, but it's also facing off against other um, you know, non-trivial players. So, so, so that's another example where concentration might be up. That's a source of concern for regulators, but they also have to really look at whether markups and, and market power are up, not just concentration. Um, I mean, we certainly want to have a, a highly competitive economy where companies rise, but that, then if there's a, a company that does it better or has some new product that supersedes what another company does, that then 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 they then, then they can rise and their their founders can get rich. You know, that sort of process of creative destruction. But you've written about creative destruction, but also sort of another kind of innovation, which is what you would call sort of iterative, where you know you you're you're not creating some brand new product; you're just making that product better. And they both sort of have a role. Uh, a role to play, right? Definitely. And it's, it's one of these things where if you just try to look at it through introspection, you can't really come up with an answer because it's easy to think about existing incumbents like coming up with new versions of iPhones or new car models, uh, new versions every year of the previous car models. And those look like important improvements. They may not be as drastic as the very first smartphone or the you know the very first minivan, for example. I think of like the third the third camera lens on the iPhone versus the you know the second camera lens. Right, right. So you, it's easy to say, well, look at them individually, and they don't look as transformative as the first, you know, smartphone that came in where Apple grabbed a bunch of market share at the expense of BlackBerry or, or, or Nokia. It, uh, it looks more like like those are bigger innovations. But on the other hand, there's tons of these smaller ones happening all the time at all these firms, and so we you can't use introspection not you personally, but one can't use introspection to try to figure out which is more important. And it's easy to tell stories like, well, most of R&D and patenting is done by incumbent firms that are pretty large. So maybe they do most of the innovation. Now, I think that the smaller firms are much less likely to report doing research and development. And a lot of these sectors where innovation is occurring don't report R&D at all. Walmart doesn't really report doing R&D. Um, and, and very few firms patent. So I don't want to use patenting and R&D as, as some end-all be-all measure of innovation. Yeah. But if you did look at that, it certainly looks like big firms, incumbent firms are very important for innovation. So ex ante, it's, it's hard to just decide, you know, what do we want? Do we want these big national uh, firms that do a lot of research or do we want lots of entry and exit? And I think we want, you know, both. But I think one of the keys is that, you know, even though by, by my estimates with some research I've done with co colleagues, we estimate that the majority of growth comes from uh, incumbent research. Um, a key corollary to that is that maybe the, one of the reasons they keep doing research is because they fear creative destruction from competitors. If Apple you know, was very comfortable with its market share and, and felt like it was impenetrable, it might not continue to innovate as much as if it fears losing its, its, its market completely. Um, so, that, so creative destruction may play you know, a one-third role directly, but a, a very important role at 
and spurring incumbents to continue to innovate, continue to make what they do better rather than just kind of rest on their current uh, products and services. And is is it different if you're in a, if you're at an economy like the U.S. economy, which is supposed to be sort of on the leading edge, the technological frontier? Uh, we're you know we're supposed to be coming up with the the new inventions and the new way of doing things. Is it? Is, is sort of that role of creative destruction more important for us than maybe some other kind of economy, which is maybe a perfectly fine economy, but, but isn't the one really generating, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of new technological progress. I, I actually might push back on that and say that countries that, that are like outside the OECD yeah. tend to have um, lower allocative efficiency, meaning that they don't seem to have capital and labor flowing to the highest use as, um, as quickly as in, in place like the United States. The United States is kind of like a ruthless capitalist economy where, you know, firms are driven out. Um, you know, Amazon driving out lots of mom and pop retailers or brick and mortar retailers more generally, not not just the small ones, but the big ones. Um, the U.S. economy has a lot of that. Rich countries in general have more of that than some middle income countries. They tend to protect, you know, even some rich countries like Japan protects a lot of its retail sector and its distribution sector from, say, foreign direct investment. So I think Japan's really shooting themselves in the foot and not allowing that kind of creative destruction that comes from having new foreign retailers come into the market. Mexico opened up to a lot of foreign retailers and there were big gains, um, you know, on the order of three to 7% income gains over a decade for the average person from being able to shop at these big box retailers they didn't have access to before. So I think the creative destruction is in a way being suppressed more in, in middle-income countries and developing countries than it is in, in rich countries. I'd be more concerned about it there from what I see. There's, you have a lot more of um, monopolies there who should be facing more competition right. and should, should have more entry that they have to deal with. What, what, would you what, what would you like policymakers to understand about trade and how it impacts innovation and growth. Obviously, it seemed like we had sort of decided that trade, that trade was good. Uh, the more free trade, the better. Now people don't seem to be quite as sure anymore. So what? So what would you want policymakers to understand that maybe you think they don't get uh, about trade? I would say that trade is a, a positive sum game. Don't think about it like a global Parker's Brothers game where there's like a winner and loser and there's a fixed <laughs> amount of resources. And I think this is you know a classically described as like, you know, cloth for wine, but there's dynamic benefits that are, I think, even bigger. And by dynamic, dynamic benefits, I mean, you know, Japan comes up with lean manufacturing and U.S. auto firms imitate it. Um, U.S. firms, you know, come up with, uh, some, you know, leading edge semiconductors and South Korean firms imitate it. So products are flowing back and forth and ideas are flowing back and forth across country in a way that's spurred by trade. Because when you trade, you can not only see the products, figure out how they're used, and then start to figure out, well, given that I use it this way, maybe I can I can develop a better version that serves my purposes even better. So I think more trade actually spurs more ideas, ideas flowing across countries. And that's a very positive something, meaning in the same way that I was saying U.S. could benefit from high skilled immigration that could do research here. We can benefit from research being done in, the, in their countries of origin. Um, I think the rise of Western Europe and Japan and South Korea um, has been a boon to the U.S., um, you know, there's a channel through which it's been a boom. There's a bunch of people who have suffered. So I think the thing I really want to, you know, communicate to policymakers is to not think about it as 
this is like our national champion versus their national champions. And so either we win and, and they lose or, or they, they win and we lose. We can both succeed at this, you know, with a even playing field, good property rights, um, you know, try to prevent countries from stealing intellectual property, but also subsidizing some firms over others. Um, with policies like the, that you could implement through things like the World Trade Organization, you can make, make this a, a positive sum game. Well, um, with big benefits. well, I mean, do you, you know, do you worry? Uh, I assume I assume you're an American citizen. Uh, do you do you worry that oh, China is going to they're going to make the the big breakthrough in AI or the breakthrough in five G or the breakthrough in some other technology? Like they'll have the technology, and then you know we'll be behind, and they'll be the leading economy, and we'll be the laggard economy. I think that's a very natural way that a lot of people think about it. Is that some country comes up with a technology, they're the winner. And if it's an important enough t technology, then they're the big winner. And then all the other countries then have to sort of buy that technology from the, the country that originated it. And, you know, and they're the followers and they're no longer the leader. Yeah. I mean, I think we should worry to the extent that there's intellectual property theft there. And, and I think part of what you're saying is being a leader has some huge profits associated with it and some huge benefits. So of course we want to be the leaders. So there, that's why I'm emphasizing the, you know, the level playing field that you kind of, that, that if, if they're the best at coming up with the next generation of, of cell phone technology, for example, or, you know, wireless technology, then at a level playing field and with enforced intellectual property rights, then, then that's going to benefit U.S. consumers more than if the U.S., you know, put barriers, I think, put barriers on importing or using those technologies from foreign firms. Um, now, if, I also have to, you know, add another cautionary note there. I'm talking about narrow economic considerations. I'm not considering any broader national security or, you know, privacy considerations that, that obviously need to be factored in that I'm, I know very little about. So, um, right. so well, I, I, I always I always think of that. Story. I, I think it was in the 1980s. There was a Clint Eastwood movie called Firefox, where the Soviet Union had developed super advanced uh, airplane technology and therefore the U.S. was at some sort of unbelievable strategic disadvantage. So we had to go steal their technology so they didn't win the Cold War. I think a lot of people, they, they view that there'll be some massive leap forward in technology, which will put us at a national security uh, disadvantage, though I understand that you're kind of looking at it more from an um, economic uh, uh, perspective. Uh, it's a few, I was just sort of winding down here. One criticism of economists is that all you're doing, you're just worried about GDP growth. That is the number one goal of economic policy is to generate fast GDP growth. Is that a accurate uh, criticism? I don't think so. I think, you know, we, economists are incredibly narrow. So that's a fair criticism in the sense that we think about people as maximizing some utility and that we often have a pretty narrow notion of utility that involves utility from consumption, leisure, maybe home production, maybe, you know, over time and maybe for your family. So clearly that misses a lot of things about, you know, that make life worth living to borrow one of my favorite scenes from the Dead Poets Society. So it was, I think that the line in that, in that movie was something like, um, you know, business and law and presumably economics as well are really important for understanding, for sustaining and promoting life, but they're not necessarily describing why we, why we want to live. Um, so I think that broad criticism of economics is fair, but I think the specific criticism that we fetishize GDP growth is, is more narrow than we are. It's too, too specific and too narrow. I think 
we have this view that that you know it would increase GDP if you um, banned retirement, but we think that would lower welfare. You know, or if you forced had forced labor of any kind, that that would increase GDP, but that would be a bad thing. So we're thinking about welfare in terms of optimal trade-off of things like leisure and retirement versus work and, and consuming now versus consuming later. So we're not so obsessed with promoting GDP later at the expense of, say, leisure or at the expense of consumption now or, or aspects that people might care about more now. So we're, we're, we're less uh, one-sided in favor of GDP growth. Than well, I mean, the, the U.S. economy has grown, I guess, about 3%, maybe a bit more since World War II. Uh, more recently, it's grown more about 2%. And I think that's roughly the long-term sort of forecast by the Fed or the Congressional Budget Office is about 2%, maybe a little bit less. But, but let's say they're wrong and said the economy over the next, U.S. economy over the next 25 years grows at 1%. Does that mean, what does that look like? I mean, the U.S. has never had the economy grow probably that slow for that long. Does that, is that like a, I mean, I realize this is maybe a little bit out of your belly, but what does America look like after 25 years of 1% growth versus 25 years of 2% growth? Or is it really much of a difference? I mean, I think we've experienced for most of the last, you know, 40 years, 1% growth and measured in productivity terms per, per worker hour. Maybe you're saying we've sustained faster growth in part because people were working more for parts of those years. Um, so, so I guess in that sense, we haven't experienced it. but. I guess I should have emphasized this when you were saying about narrowness of um, focus on GDP growth. Another key thing, which would become even more prominent if the pie's expanding at a slower rate, is being concerned about inequality. I mean, it's pretty natural to think that, that inequality, inequality is something we is a first order thing. So when you describe growth rate going from two to one percent, that's enormous for progress in human welfare. But another thing we could do that would be tremendous for human progress would be to reduce inequality. Now, both of those are difficult to do, both promote growth and reduce inequality. But, but economists don't obsess with GDP growth at the expense of saying, well, inequality, don't worry about that. We're, we're very concerned about that. Mm -hmm. So something like artificial intelligence, which might cause the growth rate to accelerate, but at the expense of rising inequality, economists would be very concerned about making sure that the growth that that, that generated was redistributed and distributed more equally to prevent inequality from soaring. So I, I guess I'm, you know, back to your direct question. I do see the pie shrinking more slow, or expanding more slowly. That we'll naturally be more concerned about inequality. We should be concerned about it anyway. We should be concerned about if growth accelerates or it stagnates. Um, but I could see it becoming a more prominent issue if growth is slow. Is it possible to get an economy that's sort of, you know, this, you know, this big, and given the demographics, to grow? I mean, uh, I think before the, uh, we passed the, the recent tax cuts in 2017, there was talk these tax cuts were going to grow the economy at 4%, 5%, 6%, maybe faster. But do you think even something like 3% is, is possible going forward? And you know, whether maybe you know, AI and robotics will increase productivity. Is it like a 3% economy still possible for the United States? I think it is, but I think it's going to have to come through some sort of technological revolution like what you're mentioning. Because if I think about like the growth rate of resources we can devote to research, you know, even if we allowed, you know, twice the H1B visas, you know, that's not going to double the the growth rate of research activity in a way that could feed the growth rate, uh, you know, push it up to to two or three percent in terms of productivity. So, 
where I would see the acceleration would have to come from would be we, we hit a rich vein of technological progress and things like AI and machine learning, you know, somewhat paradoxically, because a lot of people are fearing it. And I might sound like this completely out of touch academic professor when I say, hey, look, there's a great opportunity here. This is like the tractor hitting farming. Right. Yes, it wiped out, you know, massive numbers of jobs in farming. But if we can harness it to benefit the population more broadly, this could be a great thing. This could enable us to enjoy more leisure while getting the same goods or, you know, reduce pollution. And, you know, there's all kinds of resource problems we can address. I think people are just focusing on the downside now. I think oh, so much what you hear about a you know about technology, they just think that costs jobs. It's job replacing. It's not job enabling. It's not job creating. Yes, and and I'm I'm a cautious optimist in the sense that, or conditional optimist, you could call it, um, in the sense that as long as we handle if the distributional issues, because there there could be lots of pain and disruption associated with this, but as long as we handle that intelligently, maybe things like wage subsidies and the rising sectors um, to make it easier to, for people to transition, um, then, then this is something we should welcome rather than be fearful of. But I understand that people who've been hammered by the decline of manufacturing might be suspicious of, of people telling them to be optimistic about this. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. City Sky Cal-